Rocky Marciano, baby. Take that, Rocky. Woo! Quickly as you can, snatch the pebble from my hand. When you take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to leave. Coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Remember always that a wise man walks with his head bowed, humble like the dust. Apprentices and discipleship as defined and identified by Christ Jesus. I'd like to begin this morning in Luke chapter 14. And as everybody goes to Luke chapter 14, I just kind of want to paint the picture of what is happening in our text this morning. Well, there's a large mob of people that is swarming in on Jesus as he speaks, as he instructs them. And it got me to thinking that if a lot of us as people were to be in that position, where we had large crowds of people who were pressing in to hear what we had to say, if there were many ministers who were given that kind of access to an audience of this magnitude, a lot of people would have wanted to make that audience as loud and as vivacious as they possibly could. They would have wanted to say something that would have generated the kind of enthusiasm that would have blown the roof off the place. And I think what oftentimes happens when a person has this kind of a magnitude standing before them is that they resort to regurgitating glittery cliches from bumper sticker evangelicalism, where they just do whatever it takes to keep those crowds getting larger and larger and louder and louder and louder. They do whatever is humanly possible to increase their social media following. And to keep those like notifications blowing up on their smartphones. And yet as Jesus finds himself standing before an audience of this magnitude. That is hanging on his every word and salivating at everything that's coming out of his mouth. Jesus does not hit them with religious one-liners that they've heard a thousand and five times. Jesus does not give them cheap and easy answers that require no soul-searching or transformation of the heart. He doesn't tell them what they want to hear or what they think they already know, but rather Jesus tells them the excruciatingly honest and yet liberating truth. You see, Jesus is far more concerned with letting people know what is true and what leads to true joy and true happiness in this world, more than being liked or winning a popularity contest. It didn't always happen, but oftentimes what we see happening when Jesus has an enormous crowd of this magnitude is that they do not get bigger and bigger, they get smaller and smaller 
and quieter and quieter. And so what he says in Luke chapter 14, starting in the 25th verse, as these great crowds are accompanying him, he turns around and, and this is how Jesus addresses a large audience. You're ready for this. Verse 26 of Luke 14, Jesus says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, does not hate his mother, or does not hate his wife or children or brothers or sisters, and yes, even if he does not hate his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. You can almost envision people who are standing in this crowd just looking at each other, kind of squinting at one another, saying, wait, did he really just say what I think he just said? I mean, is he saying that I have to hate my mom and my six-year-old son in order to be a follower of his? Is that really what just came out of his mouth? And it seems like whenever we use the H word in the world of today and we say that we hate something, what, what usually comes back at us in response is, well, wait a minute, hate is a very strong word. Are you sure that you feel that way? I mean, I think about the things that I hate in this world. I hate seeing swastika flags flying in the 21st century. I hated all of the generations and decades that, that women who have been domestic abuse survivors, who have been rape victims, have to suffer in absolute silence because they're living in a man's world. They're working in a boy's club. I hate it when I see a man in his life is slowly extinguished from his body as he's got a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I hear people scattered across many different churches who are saying, good. That should have happened because after all, he handed a cashier a counterfeit bill. I hate seeing stuff like that, especially while so many of the bullies and aggressors and predators of this world who actually brag about crimes and felonies that they committed are rewarded somehow by that are made very wealthy in this world, who are venerated and made the king of the world. Even God hates things. God says on one occasion that I hate it when I see a person who has haughty eyes, who's got a lying tongue that just lies, 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 lies. God hates it, he says, when, when hands go about shedding innocent blood. Hearts that devise wicked plans, a false witness who just lies through their teeth, and a person who sows discord among those who are brothers. God says in Proverbs 6, I hate that stuff. And yet as Jesus speaks about what a disciple of his looks like, Jesus uses that same exact word, hate. And of all people in our lives, he's going to the people who we usually, a lot of people at least, have the most intimate connection and associations with. Father and mother, spouses, children, even our own pursuits in this world. Jesus says, if you don't hate that, then you might as well just stop calling yourself 
a disciple of mine because you're not. If you don't hate them as you follow after me. Well, what Jesus is doing, and for a moment I'd like to go to Matthew chapter 10 because he elaborates on this a little bit. What Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 10 is he is borrowing prophetic language from Micah. As centuries earlier, Micah had been really lamenting what, what has happened to Jerusalem. What, what they once were, they are now no more. And it's gotten so severe that he even looks in the Jewish homes and he says, there is unrest even in households now, where a son is at war against his father. A daughter-in-law is at odds against her mother-in-law. And yet he says, but nevertheless, I will remain faithful in you. One day there will be peace restored. We fast forward many, many, many years later. And now we come to the book of Matthew. And now the Prince of Peace has come. The fulfillment of the prophecy is here. And he is walking our soil. And yet, listen to what the Prince of Peace says, though. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Or he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but I have come to bring, and then he says, a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a, and a person's enemies will be the members of their own household. When first century Jews made a decision that they would be followers of Jesus Christ, this almost always came at an exorbitant price for them. It was something that, that had brought unimaginable conflict, tension, division inside their, their houses and their relationships with their parents and with their friends. Let me remind us that this is a society in first century Palestine where the religious institution had, had given express orders that if anyone is confessing Jesus in any way, we will excommunicate you just like that. You will be a blemish in your family tree forever and ever and ever. Your, your mom and dad are going to be ashamed of you if you follow after Jesus. And so for all of these individuals who entered into the kingdom of God in the first century, you better believe that they, they are walking into families with 20, 30, 40, 50 generations that have only trusted in the law of Moses. And as far as they are concerned, always will trust only in the law of Moses. Isn't it interesting that as the Prince of Peace comes, who we would have expected to just hand out doves to every household, or olive branches to every empty, extended hand. Rather, what he's handing out are swords, are bazookas, are missile launchers. Jesus is referring to the instrumentation of death and to warfare. It's the emblem of violence and unrest. And no, Jesus is not saying that the reason why he came to this world from heaven was to go around starting trouble. He's not saying that. He's not saying that I'm here to destroy everybody's happiness and your families and your friendships just for kicks. 
but rather what I believe Jesus is saying to them, as well as what he's echoing forward to us this morning, is this, is that that kind of conflict is oftentimes the aftermath of the kind of peace that I am bringing into this ruined world. And you see, this is a prophecy that continues to be fulfilled even until this morning. I'll never forget about hearing about a minister who had gone to Africa for a couple of months, and he's preaching the gospel out, out somewhere in the middle of Africa. And he baptizes a man there in Africa. The man comes up out of the water rejoicing, yes, but, but literally as soon as he came up out of the water, that minister said he just starts taking off, and he disappears into the bushes, never to be seen again. And that's because he knew what would have happened to his family. If people who he once knew learned that he was no longer a Muslim militant. And I mean, that's how his Christian walk starts. That's how he comes out of the watery womb in the delivery room. See, he discovered that Jesus also came to bring a sword into his life. A decade ago, when Amanda and I lived in China, we were amazed at how courageous our Chinese brothers and sisters really are. Because to be a Chinese Christian usually is to go up against thousands of years of Chinese ancestral traditions. Where if the wrong people learn that you are no longer a communist, atheist, or, or a Buddhist, whatever is going on there in that family, that in the society where to lose face is your worst imaginable nightmare, they will make you lose face in 20,000 different ways. They will make sure that you will never get a good job and never have a good career to provide someday for your parents, which is everything in Chinese culture. A lot of Chinese Christians who we knew said that when we were baptized, all of our friends deserted us. And said that you've been cheated by those Americans because they are of the persuasion, of the illusion that, that Jesus is a fairy tale conjured up from the Western world. And I mean, that's how a lot of their Christian lives begin from its inception. I've got another friend who, when he was 17 years old, he, he, he comes to a knowledge of the truth and he's baptized in the Christ. It's the greatest day of his life. All of heaven is rejoicing along with him, yes. And then he goes back to his, his mom and dad's house where he was living at the time. They go to another kind of, of church that does not accept baptism. And what his baptism was, was expressing loud and clear to, to them is that their relationship with, with Jesus Christ was not yet consummated. And so their dad said, pack your bags, you're no longer living here. And at 17 years old, he was out on the street because he was baptized in the Christ. You see, this is what oftentimes happens, Jesus is saying, when two polar opposite worlds collide. When two very different contrasting philosophies clash with the other. As two very different kingdoms and the way that they, they consider how our fellow man is to be treated get into a bar fight in our hearts. When this happens, what Jesus is saying to us this morning is that we're going to have a choice that we need to make. There's going to be sacrifices that we need to make, and the sacrifices are not going to be easy or pain-free. 
You see, what Jesus is inviting us to in this thing called the apprentices of God and of discipleship of Christ is that if you follow after me, then there can be no rivals. And I mean, everybody has rivals, right? Businesses have rivals. Every single day we are bombarded by commercials as one company after another is competing for our business and for our dollars. As Jerry watches his television on any given night, those commercials might as well be saying where he has a tap on, on one shoulder and a person who works at Burger King says, listen, Mr. Davis, if you leave McDonald's over here for, for um, um, Burger King right now, listen, we're going to throw in a six-pack nuggets on your value meal. You're not going to get that at McDonald's. So listen, you know. He has another tap on his other shoulder, and a person who has an, um, a yellow M hat says, yeah, but Mr. Davis, if you come back over here to McDonald's, I've spoken to my manager, and we are, we are prepared to supersize your French fries. Now, how about that? I mean, besides, are you really going to get an Oreo McFlurry at Burger King or a Sausage McGriddles? I mean, just stay over here at Burger King. And he has another tap on his shoulder, and a guy who works at Subway says, don't listen to any of them. Each one of those are going to kill you, so just come over to Subway and have a ham sandwich. You know, It's just nonstop bombardment of companies competing for our business. And yet in a much grander sense, though, every minute of every day, I assure you, we are being bombarded. We, we are being surrounded by competing passions and pursuits in this world that want to be a rival to our allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and as King in our lives. And they are, are calling out to us. They are seducing us. Listen, you don't have to keep doing this thing. You can have every Sunday morning to yourself for the rest of your life. You don't have to keep living for Jesus. You can, you can have it your way over here for the rest of your life. All you got to do is, is to denounce Jesus. You see, as Jesus uses that word hate, whoever comes to him and does not hate his own father and mother and so forth, it, it obviously can mean that you detest something or to renounce something as, as you prefer something else instead. And yet another and perhaps the most helpful meaning of this word is to simply love something less. Jesus is using very strong words in order to say that, that if you follow after me, you've got to love all these other people less than you love me. And as he continues in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he, he again says that whoever loves father or mother more than me, well, they're not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not lift up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And then Jesus says, whoever finds his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is going to find it, Jesus says. What Jesus is saying is that either I will be supremely loved or I'm not going to be loved at all. 
What Jesus wants from you and I is that we are so enchanted by his cross, that we are so mesmerized by his empty tomb and by his gospel, by his love in this world, that we don't even have eyes for all the other gods that are in the room around us anymore. What he's saying is that I want you to love me more than anybody else in this world because what oftentimes happens when a person chooses to follow after Jesus is that there are competing voices in our family sometimes. We have friends who are trying to pull us away from Jesus saying, you've been cheated. And it seems like the grand majority of the people who want to follow Jesus, who, who claim that they want to follow Jesus in the Gospels, they walk away from Jesus grieving. Yeah, Jesus, I will follow after you, but listen, I've got a sick dad, and I need to stick around there for a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. But, but listen, after that, after he's been buried, yeah, then I will come follow you. Jesus is like, I'm going to be crucified about two years from now, so you better get on this train because it's leaving. Another person says, Lord, I will follow after you, but first I need to say goodbye to those at, at home. And Jesus knows that's not going to happen. If he goes home and he says, I'm going to follow after that, that homeless carpenter who everybody thinks is nuts. No, that's not. They're going to try to talk him out of that one, guaranteed. As Jesus speaks about his kingdom and he likens it to a banquet feast, he says that many people were invited, but they had excuses. There was a person who said, Lord, I have, I, you know, I just got married. I've taken a wife, so consider me excused from the feast. And so Jesus says, you've got to love me more than everybody else. And yet, what he's also driving home to us is that you've got to love me more than anything else as well. Jesus could have just as easily said that, that whoever comes to me and does not love their career or their success or their golf clubs or their money or their television or their college football team or their country or their political party less than me. They cannot be my disciple. And Jesus says it on the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters. He's either going to love the one and hate the other, or he's going to be absolutely devoted to one and detest and despise the other. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and, and then we all can fill in the blanks. See, I believe what Jesus is inviting us to in terms of our discipleship and as apprentices of his is that all of our other loves in this world, it's okay to love all these other people. Jesus says, love one another. And yet our love for all these other people are to be so much less than our love for God that they resemble hatred, at least in comparison to our love for Christ. There was a theologian who said it very well, whose name is Tim Brumfield. And what he said is that Jesus does not want us to make him number one on our life priority list. But rather, Jesus wants to be our life priority list. 
And you see, when we love Jesus supremely above anything and anybody else, what, what this does in our lives is that it transforms every other relationship that we have in this world. So as a husband looks at his wife, if he loves Jesus in this way, he will never look at his wife as his glorified property ever again. He will not treat her as a demure maidservant of his. But rather, when he looks at her, he sees a mere image of the way Christ is to look at the church. And now he's making sacrifices for his wife, loving her as Christ loved the church when he went to the cross for her. It's when a parent looks at their child, and even if they, they are not in the church just yet, if they love Jesus more than even son and daughter, they, they are giving them, whether they understand it or not, a beautiful example of what living as a disciple of Jesus looks like. And I believe they are going to be really noticing this. Even in our relationships at our job sites, if we love Jesus, if we're working for Jesus and not for man, Yes, it's still going to be long work days of blood and toil sometimes, but we're going to be walking into work on a Monday morning. And it's going to feel like Friday afternoon. And our coworkers are going to be like, what is going on with that guy to have that much joy in this place? Even with the people who have harmed us, we will look at them as Christ looks at us when we have sinned against him, if we love him in this way. And when you and I come together as the church, Jesus tells his apostles that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Jesus says, if you can just learn to love one another the way that I love you, that is going to be a verification that this world is going to look at and say, okay, that is the church of Christ right there. Those are the Jesus people because of their radical love for one another. And you see, if we valued imitating Jesus the way that we parrot all of the talking um, heads on television and the political pundits, if we pursued knowing Jesus the way that we want to know our friends and our spouses and our children, if we prayed as fervently as we watched our televisions, oh, what an even more beautiful church we would be. Jesus wants to be number one and number two and number three and number four and number five with no close sixth place or 100th place in our lives. And I think it all boils down to a forgotten beatitude. If we look at just a few words later, we come into Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist now is in jail. And it appears that he's wrestling with, with uncertainties about Jesus now. So he sends messengers to Jesus who ask him, are you the Messiah or should we expect another one? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus explains what is going on in his earthly ministry. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and so forth. But then notice verse 6. Meditate on verse 6. Where he gives another beatitude and he says, Blessed, makarios, happy to be envied, those who are most well off 
are the ones who are not offended by me. You know, that word offended is a very interesting word in the Greek language. It means that you place something in the pathway of another person that caused them to stumble and to fall flat on their face. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not fall away, who does not stumble because of me. And the prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus is born in the manger, what Isaiah refers to Jesus as in the prophecy is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we just wonder, well, I mean, how? How could a sinless Savior cause anybody to stumble? I mean, what, what is going on there? And yet, what that means is that many, many people took offense at Jesus. A lot of people in the Jewish religious world were offended at Jesus when he came. There were many people who were offended at who Jesus was. They're expecting, you know, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be this very impressive, very handsome, very rich individual who, who came from wealth. But a lot of people were, were offended how Jesus was a homeless, um, a carpenter who, who was born inside an animal feeding trough. He goes to his hometown, he's teaching them wonderful things, but, but they're not listening to it because, wait a minute, isn't this just the carpenter? That's Yeshua, it's, it's Josh. I mean, we saw that kid grow up. I mean, who does he think he is? He's not the son of God. And it says that his own hometown was, was so offended at him that they tried to throw him off a cliff. A lot of, you know, even more individuals were, were even more offended at, at who Jesus loved. Where scribes and Pharisees were rebuking his disciples all the time, saying, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and wait for it? Wait for it. Why does he eat with sinners? You see, they were so offended at Jesus because the very people who he was including into his kingdom were the ones who they were excluding, who they were hating. And they were offended at, at all the good works that he did on, on, on um, Sabbath days. And yet mostly what they were offended by was what Jesus actually said. I remember earlier on in 2020, before everything went absolutely nuts in our world, how a comedian named Ricky Gervais was hosting the Golden Globe Awards. Ricky Gervais is a bit of a cringe comic. And what cringe comics are known for is their ability to reveal uncomfortable truths and to expose social ills of our society in a way that makes people very, very uncomfortable. It makes them recoil and to kind of sink back in their, their chair like, ooh. And sure enough, you could tell that a lot of people in that audience were very offended at what he was saying. That's because, after all, cringe comedy can be very offensive sometimes. Not everybody has those kind of ears for that kind of comedy. 
Well, what are you saying, David? Are you saying that Jesus is a cringe comic? Well, no, you know, I'm not saying Jesus is a cringe comic. And yet I am saying that Jesus is a cringe rabbi and a cringe savior and a cringe messenger of the truth. See, I am saying that when the first century world listened to what Jesus had to say, they were recoiling at the things that he was revealing. They were offended at the uncomfortable truths that, that he was making known to their minds. As he exposed so much of the hypocrisy of the religious institution, it made them recoil in shock and in rage. No, not everybody has those kind of ears or those kind of hearts for this kind of teaching. Not everybody has the kind of hearts for this kind of kingdom. Jesus is a cringe rabbi. I remember one instance Jesus has perhaps his largest crowd that he ever had, John chapter 6. And again, what he says is very uncomfortable truths. He says that, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life with me. People are looking at each other like, okay, that's it. This guy's nuts. Obviously, he's speaking metaphorically, but all they hear is a cannibal speaking. And people leave him in droves. I think about another time Jesus says that even if your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Cut it off, throw it away. On another occasion, Jesus is speaking and he's, he's talking to a bunch of Pharisees and he says that, that it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man. And his apostles pull him aside afterwards and said, Jesus, listen, don't you know that scribes and Pharisees were offended at what you just said? And Jesus is like, yeah, and? And then Jesus goes even deeper in his analogy. Deep, you know, he, you know, he um, doubles down on them. He goes even further and he says that, yeah, it's, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles men, but what comes out of it. Because when you eat something, it goes into your stomach and then it is eliminated. Very strong language in, in, in the original language. Very crass language almost. And yet he's speaking about the heart there. I just wonder if we sometimes ourselves are offended at what Jesus has to say to us in the world of today. I once heard a song many years ago, and it is a hypothetical that if Jesus were to come to America now, rather than a first century Palestine, would we be the Pharisees of the modern day recoiling in disgust and offense at Jesus? Or would we be those few rare ones called apprentices and disciples who were willing to die surrendering to his lordship? I mean, imagine God in the flesh standing right in front of you only for us to rebuke him, to say that he's got a demon, only to spit in his face and to slap him and to punch him in his face. You see, this is a very, very, very controversial grace that he has because it covers everybody in the world. 
And we see Jesus, yes, Jesus is seated with us saying, I love you, but, but Jesus is also seated with all the people in this world who we can't stand. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing with that guy with the red hat? Jesus, what are you doing sitting down with Donald Trump? What? What are you doing sitting down with, with Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, whoever it is who we don't like, Jesus is seated with them. Jesus is saying, I went to the cross for you too. You know, in closing, I just want to go back to Ricky Gervais for just a moment. As Ricky Gervais was in the middle of his opening monologue at the Golden Globes, you know, he kept going to a certain celebrity who was visibly offended at what he was saying. Everything he was saying was just making his eyebrows go up. It was Tom Hanks. The camera goes to Tom Hanks and he's just like, you know, angry at the guy. And yet it also goes to Leonardo DiCaprio, as Ricky Gervais had told a joke about Leonardo DiCaprio. And Leonardo's sitting there, he's got the biggest smile on his face. He's nodding his head, not taking himself seriously at all. And again, I'm not speaking about comedy. But rather, what I am speaking about is spiritually in response to what Jesus says in terms of discipleship. If we ever find ourselves glaring down at the page in anger, if we feel the blood, you know, our, our blood pressure skyrocketing as we hear God's word preached to us, maybe we just need to ask ourselves, just what am I cringing at? Just what am I resisting or rolling my eyes to? Because it might just be Jesus who we're cringing at. It might just be the kingdom of, of heaven that we are resisting. It might just be the Sermon on the Mount that we are rolling our eyes to. When our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, do not be a Tom Hanks, be a Leonardo DiCaprio. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. That whoever loves anyone and anything more than me is not worthy to be my disciple. Whoever comes to me and does not love all others less than me, they're not my disciple. And yet whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who's going to find true life upon the face of this earth. Rocky Marciano, baby! Take that, Rocky!